0: Um, Exodus chapter 34, uh, we're reading, fairly lengthy uh, passage. Uh, If you can think about it in in two phases, that might help you. Uh, Moses is going up into the mountain again, and then he's coming back down from the mountain, and that's probably uh, the main division, actually, the things that characterize both parts of that. During the course of uh, tonight, we'll turn to another passage in the New Testament, uh, briefly, which actually gives a commentary on this chapter and helps us to understand it a little bit better. In fact, I don't think we would really understand this chapter properly if it wasn't for that passage in Second Corinthians. So let's, let's read um, from Exodus 34. The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke, Be ready by the morning, and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai, and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you. Let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose up early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him, and he took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head towards the earth and worshipped, and he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance." And he said, Behold, I am making a covenant. Before all your people I will do marvels, such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and the Jebusites. Take care, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars, break their pillars, cut down their asherim, for you shall worship no other god, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God." lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and you're invited, you eat of his sacrifice, and you take of their daughters for your sons, and their daughters whore after their gods, and make your sons whore after their gods. You shall not make for yourself any gods of cast metal. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread, Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread as I commanded you, at the time appointed in the month Abib, for in the month Abib you came out from Egypt. All that open the womb are mine, all your male livestock, the firstborn of cow and sheep, the firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, or if you will not redeem it you shall break its neck. All the firstborn of your sons you shall redeem, and none shall appear before me empty-handed. Six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. In plowing time and in harvest you shall rest. You shall observe the feast of weeks, the first fruits of wheat harvest, and the feast of ingathering at the year's end. Three times in the year shall all your males appear before the Lord God, the God of Israel. For I will cast out nations before you and enlarge your borders. No one shall covet your land when you go up to appear before the Lord your God three times in the year. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened, or let the sacrifice of the feast of the Passover remain until the morning. The best of the firstfruits of your ground you shall bring to the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. And the Lord said to Moses, write these words, for in accordance with these words I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. So he was there with the Lord forty days and forty nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water, and he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, As he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterwards, all the people of Israel came near. And he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining and Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. Amen. May God's word uh, speak to all our hearts, touch all our hearts tonight. So the, the main point uh, of this lengthy reading of this chapter uh, we've had is, is about the renewal uh, of, of the covenant, it's the renewal of the covenant. Now, that in itself was a, was a very remarkable thing. I mean, the, the covenant that had been first of all established had, had hardly been established before it was broken. I mean, Moses, as he came down from the mountain after the first 40 days and 40 nights, uh, I mean, he broke the, the tablets of stone. He saw how the people were behaving and he, and he, and he threw them down to the ground And the tablets of stone split and were broken. And that that was just symbolic, actually. It wasn't so much that the, the physical tablets of stone were broken. It was that the agreement was broken. The covenant had been broken right out of the traps, so to speak. I mean, the very first thing that had been at top of the list was, you shall have no other gods before me. And that was the very first thing that they had broken. And so it's remarkable that God in His goodness and in His patience, as He answers the prayer of Moses, is willing again to renew the covenant all over again uh, with them. And and what it does here is it starts in the first few verses, maybe down to verse 9 or so, uh, to introduce us to the character of God and to let us know what what God is like. The God who's entering into this this covenant arrangement relationship with His people, despite all these failures uh, that have characterized them, and uh, giving them this second chance uh, of renewal. This is a great example of of the grace of God, that where sin has abounded, grace uh, abounds even, even more. So, he goes back up the mountain again and for a further 40 days and 40 nights and as you can see he doesn't eat or drink for you know virtually a month and a half uh, as he's up in that mountain uh, and he has this experience of the of the covenant uh, being being renewed now the first the first part of the of the chapter in in, in, in large degree is is a response to the request that Moses makes at the end of chapter 33. You remember, he says to God, I, I want you to show me your glory. And, and, and really, this is what he experiences here. This, this is the point about, you know, you won't see all of me. I'll, there's a cleft in the rock. Uh, you'll go there, I'll put my hand over it, and, and you'll see my back parts. Uh, as I pass in front of you, this, this is now the fulfillment of it. And so what we have here is his experience of, of the glory of God. And, and this is one of the main points, if not the main point that I want to emphasize as we go through this chapter. It's about the glory of God. Now, if we were all asked to write down in a bit of paper our definition of glory, I, I think, you know, we might struggle a little bit. You know, what, what does glory mean? actually mean? You know, we we sing about it in the National Anthem, don't we? Happy and glorious, uh, long to reign over us. It's all about ceremony and pageantry and color and noise and occasion. How would we describe the glory of God? Well, one of the helpful ways to describe it is that glory is the sum of the attributes of God, if we are to think of all God's attributes, the things that we know about them, and we were to add them all together and think of them all as a composite, in some ways, that's a definition of the glory of God. There are other definitions, and I'm going to come to that later on, But that is, and we certainly have that in the first half of, of this chapter. So, let me show you what I mean by that. At Verse number five, the Lord descended in the cloud... And stood with him there, and proclaimed the name of the Lord. Now, when we come across that, the idea of the name is, is the character of somebody. So it's that it's the, as he proclaims the name of the Lord, he's expressing what God is like. Um, and 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 verse six, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, so so forth. Now. Of course, Moses had known something about this already at the burning bush way back at the start of Exodus. The Lord, he proclaims his name. He asks, who will I say has sent me? It's the Lord, Jehovah, I am. Now, okay, here is an attribute of God. I am. I I am self-existent. I don't don't need anybody else. Um, I I am um, self-evident and self-existent and eternal. And we think about the greatness of God and we look up at the stars at night and we think of the vast universe that stretches away beyond us and we understand something about the, the awesomeness of God as far as His eternity and His power and His greatness is concerned. Now, now Moses understood that. He saw a, a bush that burned and it wasn't consumed. And in a sense, that was, that was symbolic of God, that God burns and, and and yet that burning goes on and on and on. But there's something more, that's only one aspect of God's glory. God's glory is the aggregation of all his characteristics. We put them all together and we get some idea of what his glory is like. So let's look at the list of them. We're not going to look at that in detail because it's a big chapter, and I don't want to speak too long but I have at least noted down here five other characteristics of God on top of what I've just said. And so, for instance, the Lord, verse 6, describes Himself as being merciful and gracious. God is not just powerful. He's not just vast. He's not just eternal. He's not just self-evident. He's, he's merciful and He is gracious. That is what God is like in His essence. Not just a quality that He has, but in His absolute essence is mercy and grace. Point number two, He's slow to anger. What is God like? Is God quick in bringing in His judgment against humanity, against us? He is not. God is patient. That's what He's like. He's long-suffering. He delays judgment. He doesn't wish the death of any, but that everyone comes to repentance and lives. Point number three, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. What is the glory of God? Well, this is part of it. We think about the steadfast love that that never fails, that never weakens, that never changes, that irrespective of everything else, it keeps on going and is true and is faithful. This is what God is like as far as His love is concerned. Point number four, and He forgives. there are three different words that are used here regarding God's forgiveness, different little angles, nuances, uh, as far as sin is concerned, sin is iniquity, it's transgression, it is sin, it misses the mark. You know, it's rebellion against God, it's crossing the line, and it's missing the mark. And God will forgive these things. That is what God is like. He's not somebody who turns his back on sin. In his essence, he is a forgiving God. However, and the fifth and final point here, he will by no means clear the guilty. The God of justice and holiness and purity. Seems a paradox to us, doesn't it, to have both of these things held together. And yet, this is what God is like. And He proclaims all of this as Moses is hidden in the cleft of the rock and the glory of God to some extent. And this is not the whole thing. This is only part of it that He sees and is aware of. And yet, He understands something of the, the multifaceted, greatness and, and glory of the God before whom He now stands, and He is experiencing here on top of Mount Sinai. Now, there is really only one adequate response to the glory of God. You know, it is, it is something that we, that we all really should, should seek to experience increasingly, you know, that, I mean, that's that's the prayer of the Lord Jesus, actually, wasn't it, in John 17? He prayed for the disciples that were there. He also prayed for those who would believe on Him through their word, which I guess is us, you know? And one of the things that He prayed was that they would see My glory, the glory um, that He had with with the Father before the foundation of the world. That is my prayer, he said. And, and, and that will be the experience. I, I often think of that verse actually at a funeral of a Christian, actually, that the prayer of Christ is answered at that point because they now see the glory of Christ. Christ's prayer has been answered, you know, because they now see in all his glory. We should experience that to some extent in our lives. It should be a, a big... Uh, uh, a big motivation for us. One of the key things that drives us in our Christian life is to, is to behold the glory of Christ and to understand that. And, and, and that's where worship comes from. And That's what happens here as far as Moses is concerned. Verse number eight, he quickly bowed his head towards the earth and he worshiped. He came to understand something of the worth of God, the value, the glory of God. And, and, and this, this needs to be all of our responses increasingly. The Father seeks worshipers. More than anything else, that's what God seeks. You know, not people who necessarily are trotting around, being busy doing this and that, because the motivation can be a little bit kind of, you know, off-beam off sometimes, but it's, it's worship that the Father, more than anything, is looking for. Those who will worship in spirit and in truth, like uh, Mary of Bethany, you know, who, in response to knowing that Christ was going to die, brings the alabaster box of ointment and breaks it and, and is at his feet with, with the worship of her heart. And she's done a beautiful thing to me, says Christ. He understood, he, underst- he knew exactly what was in the heart of, Mo- of Mary, and that was, that was worship. So, so, this is the God Who who commits himself to the covenant? Now, sometimes we can get taken up with some of the old words like covenant, um, and and fail to actually, you know, recognize exactly what was going on. It was a pact. It was almost like a treaty that was being entered into here, an, an official, formal agreement between God and His people. Moses was their representative, and this is what the Lord is saying here. The Lord is saying. I commit myself to this covenant. I sign up, if you like, to this covenant. I will dwell among you. I will go in the midst of you. Verse 10. I am making a covenant. I will do marvels. I will take you into this land. I will um, drive out the nations uh, before you, and you will be my inheritance. Now, that's, that's unusual, isn't it? That's at the end of verse 9. Moses says, you know, take us for your inheritance. Of course, the land was to be their inheritance. But his prayer was that God committed himself to making his people his inheritance. Now, that might have some echoes for you. Um, later on, go and, go and read Paul's prayer in Ephesians chapter 1. One of the things he makes up as part of his prayer, that the, the, the folks in Ephesus would come to grasp and to understand the riches of God's inheritance in his saints. Now, we often think of, you know, all that we have in Christ, the blessings of salvation as our inheritance. But what God prays that we comprehend is that we are his inheritance. Now, that's, that's phenomenal that God looks on us as His inheritance, His special treasure, because of His love uh, for us. So, in a sense, that is the, the first scene, the, the glory of God as, as He commits Himself to renewing, in His grace, uh, this this covenant. Now, the second part, which is the longest part of the passage from 10 down to 28, um is really a kind of summary of, of, of restating parts of the covenant, which already has been laid out previously in, in the book of Exodus, really from, say, around about chapter 21 on, some of the key points that were stated during the first 40 days' occasion when Moses had been up there on Sinai. And effectively, what's being laid out here is their part of the bargain. You know, a covenant is two parties. God has said, I commit myself to this. I will be your God. I will go with you. I will dwell among you. And this is them now having to sign up to their part and to say, this is what we agree to, and the covenant is agreed. So, there, there's a summary of, of, of what they are signing up for. So, I've tried to kind of summarize this so we don't spend too much time getting bogged down on it, uh, but I've, I've by and large summarized this into to three headings, all right? So, if you look, for instance, at uh, verse 12 to 17, and um, we're calling this no covenants with the pagans. So, that's in contrast, obviously, with the covenant they're making with God. No covenants with the pagan nations. Take care, lest you make a covenant, verse 12, with the inhabitants of the land. So that, that's something that they have, to, they have to say. They have to sign to. We, we, we won't make a covenant with these people. And the reason for that is pretty clear, isn't it? Uh, here are people who are idolaters, um, tied into the worship of their pagan deities. There's a whole lot of atrocious you know, practices and behavior. You know, if you enter into a covenant, of course, marriage is included as one of the covenants. Don't do that, he said, because when you do that, your heart will be drawn away, not just to the women you marry, but to the idols that they hold dear as well. And it will change your whole heart and direction. Um, So no covenant with with the people that you um, are going to, uh, whose land you're going to take. Secondly, secondly, Uh, verses 18 to 24, you shall keep the feasts, all right? No covenants with the pagans. Keep the feasts. Now, there are three feasts that are mentioned here, annual feasts. All the males are mentioned in particular, and they have to appear before the Lord, verse 24, three times every year at these feasts in, in Jerusalem. That's where you get, you know, like the, the Psalms of Ascent and in, in, in our, in our, our Psalms, when they used to go up three times a year, they were some of the songs they sang as they traveled from all the different parts and areas of the country up to Jerusalem, presented before the Lord. Now, the, the, the three main festivals or feasts uh, that are mentioned, of course, um, are all to do with an, an expression of, of God's goodness to them. So let's, let's just look at them very, very briefly. Verse 18, you shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. Okay, now, feast of unleavened bread was, was really joined on to the Passover. So, the Passover started and the unleavened bread uh, festival followed immediately on. You read that in chapter 12 uh, of Exodus. And interestingly, what, what he now does down to verse 20, is he picks up on one of the main points of the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And it's the concept of redemption. You know, so that this, he said, this is important. You have to sign up to this. I want you to go at this particular time, the first month of the year, and you all come before me, and you observe this feast because you have to be reminded about your redemption. You know, that you were redeemed from, from, from Egypt. And the price of your redemption was the blood of the Passover lamb. And, he, and, and, of course, the whole point of the Passover lamb, which is tied into what is said in verse number 20, all the firstborn of your sons you shall redeem, is that, you know, the firstborn of Egypt all died because they were not sheltered beneath the blood. The firstborn of the children of Israel were spared, because the blood of the Lamb protected them, and therefore the firstborn belonged to God. You know, so each time a child was born, a firstborn child, that child had to be redeemed. They belonged to the Lord. And the principle of redemption, you know, it extended actually beyond boys and girls. It it extended to animals as well, and you've got this kind of quirky thing that's mentioned here about the donkey uh, as well, where it says, um, where are we? The firstborn, verse 20, of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. Now, just imagine that, you know. Here's a, a donkey that's born, and it's, you know, skittering around, and hardly be able to on its feet. Then, you know, a, a lamb has to be sacrificed so that this donkey can live. And if uh, you're not prepared to do it, the donkey has to die. Now, you know, in everyday life, the principle of redemption was being highlighted, and they had to appreciate it. Redemption, redemption, redemption. You're a people who have been redeemed. God has done this for you. The blood was shed, and you were rescued, and you were delivered, and this was the price. So, that's highlighted uh, in this this particular feast. The second feast that's mentioned, verse number 22, is the Feast of Weeks you shall observe the Feast of Weeks, the first fruit of the wheat fu- of the wheat harvest. Now, that's otherwise known as the, the Feast of Pentecost, the day of Pentecost, seven full weeks after the Passover. Fifty means Pente, Pentecost, Pentagon, you know, Pentecost. Um, Fifty days afterwards. And this was the first of the harvest festivals. Um, and, uh, you know, It was about God's goodness to them, His provision, what He had given for them. And um, the seeming paradox, because it's tied into the Sabbath there in verse um, 21, that although they didn't work every day, God still provided. They didn't have to be at it all the time because productivity would fail. They they rested, they gave that day to God, and God still provided for them. Uh, and And they celebrated that at the, the Feast of, of Weeks that it's mentioned here. Incidentally, it also says, don't, don't know if you picked up on this, verse 24, um, he says, you know, you might, be, you might be a wee bit concerned about national security during, uh, during these times of, of festival. I mean, if word gets out that all the males um, are going to leave their towns and villages along the borders of Ashkelon and you know, the Gaza Strip and all the rest of it uh, to go to Jerusalem, you can understand the enemies might get word of this and breach your security. Well, look at what he says here. Um, verse 24, I'll cast out nations before you and enlarge your borders. No one shall covet your land when you go up to appear before the Lord your God three times in the year. I will make sure you will be secure and you'll be safe. You come before me. You worship before me. And one of the main principles of them appearing like that at the end of verse 20, no one is to appear before me empty-handed. Right? So, they didn't want anybody to pitch up at either unleavened bread, the Feast of Weeks, um, or the, the latter... Um, Harvest Festival as well, Feast of Tabernacles, um, without something to offer to God. Everybody had to come with something. Their hands had not to be empty. And of course, that's a great principle, isn't it, in general, for any of us when we appear before the Lord, not to to come with empty hands, but always to have something to give. I think I said something about Eddie to that extent at his funeral service that one of the things that always impressed me about Eddie at a prayer meeting was he had always something in his hands to give, all right? He always had something that he came to give to the Lord as far as his worship was concerned, his appreciation as he presented himself before the Lord. A great example for all of us, and it's a principle that's marked out here. When you come before me, don't come with empty hands. Always, Not determined to do something, but prepared to give something um, to the Lord, and then, just a wee bit about the final part of this covenant that they have to sign up to um, is about what I've called distinctiveness, or, or, or kind of uniqueness. You know, they're, they're, they're to sign up to the fact that there's going to be certain practices and characteristics of how we are as a nation that are going to be different from all the other countries round about us. It's going to set us apart. You know, it's almost like um, when the, uh, the Puritans crossed 1620 in the Mayflower over to North America, you know, for, for because of conscience, to set up a brave new world, you know, and, um, and uh, they w- there were going to be laws and ways that they did things, they thought, that would set us apart. You know, even in the 1700s when the Declaration of Independence was announced and the and they, and they signed it, you know, we hold it as self-evident that everybody is, is born equal and, you know, liberty and freedom is, is an inalienable right of people. And they hoped, of course, that their nation would, would take on a distinctiveness uh, that would rise above the common herd, you know. And, of course, we know that that hasn't really happened. But there were things here that they were asked to sign up to that would make them distinct, that their nation would work in a different way completely different from everything else. And there are a few examples uh, of this that some of them might seem a little bit unusual, but they're put here. So, for instance, verse number 25, don't offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened. All right, leaven. You know, unleavened bread, leaven. You know, you put the leaven in and it causes the bread uh, to rise. Fermentation takes place And there's a kind of spreading effect. And very often in the Bible, uh, leaven is used, not always, but often, as an illustration and as a symbol of sin. So Jesus said, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Hypocrisy works like yeast, it works like leaven. And you put a little bit in and it will spread. And in fact, what they did when they came out of Egypt was that it was unleavened bread, because very often when you made your bread, you know, you took a piece of the leaven from the previous batch to make the next batch. There was a complete break when they left Egypt and they traveled out towards the promised land. Unleavened bread. They wanted no influence at all from the old life to enter into the new one. That was symbolized uh, in that. And there was no mix with the blood of the sacrifice, with anything leavened. The sacrifice of the Feast of the Passover had not to remain until the morning. They'd eat the whole thing on that night. And that kind of characterized the idea of this This was important. It was one-off. It had to be done with haste. You know, they were, they were leaving. God was going to enter in decisively and deliver them, and they had to be ready for the off straight away. And that was part of the unleavened thing as well. There was going to be no time for, for that bread even to rise. You know, God was going to come down, God was going to come in, and, uh, and, and you would be delivered and you're off. And, and that perhaps is, is, is symbolized uh, in, in this. There are also some dietary laws here. This one, you shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Probably that's the background to some of the kosher kind of dietary laws that uh, are still observed. Even in how they ate their food, there was to be a distinctiveness. Nobody knows exactly why this is put here. Some people think that it could have been part of one of the kind of idolatrous rituals of the, of the land, and so they were to keep clear of that. There could be an element of, you know cruelty here as well. You know, you, you kill both the, the goat and its mother. You boil the little goat and its mother's milk. And, you know, that wasn't to even be a part of, of how they prepared, of how they prepared their, their food. So anyway, all of these things are put down there. Things that have to do with the distinctiveness, with the feasts, and with the covenants. And Moses writes it all down. And he says, we sign up to this. We, we understand the terms of the covenant, and we are prepared to take that on board, and uh, he signs up to it. And, and, of course, the point that's made is that he writes this on, on the tablets of stone. You know, that, 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 of course, is passed into everyday common parlance, isn't it? Something is either set in stone or it's, it's not set in stone. Well, this was absolutely set in stone. You know, there was no variation. This was it. The covenant was made. It was set in stone. And, and uh, there was something glorious about, about what their, their plans were, what their ambitions were, what they wanted to be, and what they, they aspired to. But then to take this whole point uh, about aspiration, about, about glory, into the final uh, paragraph of, of the chapter, uh, which has to do with Moses' face shining as he comes down from the mountain, so, he was not aware of this until he meets with the elders, didn't realize that the skin of his face was shining because he had been in the presence of God, um, and, 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 the, and, the, and the leaders are, are afraid of him. And, and what he ends up doing, of course, is, is putting a veil over his face. Um, now, as I said earlier, we wouldn't actually know really what this meant was it not for another passage of Scripture? I think we could get the, the wrong end of the stick, actually, altogether. Now, I'm, I'm not going to spend, you'll be delighted to know, I'm not going to spend a long time in this, but um, if you turn your Bible to 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 3, because it's only when you're at this passage that you know what this means. Now, as I say, you can understand completely, he's, he's experienced uh, something of the glory of God. It's uh, had an impact on him and, uh, you know, it's transformed him even to the fact that his, his face is shining as he comes down. And, uh, and, and, the, and they, they can't cope with that. And so he has to put the veil over, the, over his face just so that they can live with him because of the effect of the glory of God. Now, we would think that was the case, but that is not the real reason for it. I'm going to point it out from this chapter. So, but basically what was happening was this. As Moses came down and he began to speak with the leaders, he suddenly became conscious of the fact that the glory that affected his face was changing. It was, it was actually diminishing. It was, it, was fade, it was beginning to fade away. Maybe he felt it a bit hot on his face you know, with like the sunburn. And, uh, and then it changed, and he, he didn't feel it in quite the same way again. And uh, he began to realize that it's not quite so bright just now as it was two hours ago. And uh, this, this glory is actually getting less and less. Now, let's, let's turn to chapter 3 of 2 of Corinthians um, so that we can... Yeah, verse 12... Verse 13, we are not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. All right? He didn't want them to realize that the glory of this covenant was a diminishing covenant. It was a diminishing glory, it was a fading glory. He didn't want them to understand that, so he, he covered it up deliberately. It was a cover-up. <laughs> the glory is fading away. It's a fading glory. Now, that point is, is taken up in this chapter here, Second Corinthians chapter 3. And there's a contrast that's being made in this chapter. And the contrast is this. There is the glory of the, of the old covenant, and there's the glory of the new covenant. And the new covenant is what we as believers have. And it is described here as the surpassing glory. You know, there's the glory that just keeps on going and gets brighter and brighter, and it will never fade. It will never get less. It will never get become a disappointment. It will keep on shining brighter and brighter. The glory of this covenant surpasses the one we've been talking about today. It was glorious, but effectively, it was a covenant that they couldn't keep. And so, it was a covenant that ended up condemning them. You know, it, was like it brought death because of the, the corruption of the human heart. Nobody could, even although they signed up to it, they couldn't keep it. And so, it was no use at all. But there is a new covenant. We're reminded about that every Lord's Day when we take the bread and the wine. The new, this, is the, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for you a new arrangement, a new treaty, a new pact that you can sign up to. And it's, it's on the basis of my blood shed upon the cross, not on whether you can, you can stop entering into covenants with the people and present yourself three times a year and not eat the goat's milk and all the rest of it. It's, it's on the basis of what I have done. And Hebrews 10 goes further and talks about the fact that this is a covenant that's not written on tablets of stone, but it's written on our hearts by God's Spirit. And that's what's happened for for those of us who have believed in the Lord. We've entered into this agreement that He keeps, and He's written it by His Spirit in our hearts. And, And that is a glorious thing. That is the glory that excels, the glory that surpasses. And so, One of the ways in which he concludes 2 Corinthians chapter 3 is this. We're not going to put a veil over that. (laughs) We're not going to cover that one up like Moses did, you know? So, he says, am I going to cover up the gospel? Am I going to cover up the new covenant, the wonderful message of God's grace, the message of the cross of Christ? No, he says, with boldness, with boldness, I'm going to keep on presenting this. And that that's one of the big messages I think that should come to us tonight. You know, the glory of the new covenant, let's not cover it up. All right? Let's be bold. Uncover it. You know, unveil it like, you know, a statue. Unveil it so everybody can see the glory of, of Christ. Now, last point. And uh, I said there are a number of ways to define glory. Well, here's another one. It's in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Glory can be understood in terms of weight. You ever thought about that? Weight. Look at how he puts it here. Verse 17 of 2 Corinthians 4. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal what weight of glory beyond all comparison light and heavy when we think of god's glory or the glory of the gospel it is not in any sense light or frothy or superficial okay it's substantial it is, it is weighty. Now, we're not kind of trying to diminish the difficulty of people's circumstances. That can be very difficult and trying. But the apostle does say that if we're going to compare things, some of the things that might happen to us in life are afflictions. Number one, they're momentary. They're for a moment. And, and they're light. They are light in comparison To the eternal weight of glory that awaits us who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. So glory, that's what we should take away uh, from from this meeting tonight. The glory of God that Moses experienced, that he was was changed by. But the fact that that glory is a fading one. And what we have is a glory that far exceeds all of that. let's, Let's grasp that. And let's not cover that up as we move into this this new week. Then shall we pray? Lord, thank you again for your word and all its great variety. Thank you for what we've had revealed to us about your greatness and your glory. The sum of your attributes, the fact that they're not inconsequential, that they're uh, weighty. And Lord, we just bow our hearts like Moses did and worship because we know this will never fade away. Um, It will grow brighter and brighter until the day we see and experience your immediate presence. So we ask a blessing upon your people today and upon the gospel that has been preached here and will be preached during the course of this week through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.